upon a star. Now we want you to share with us our latest and greatest dream. Disneyland. Just go to Action Park, there's no other park like it. Six Flags Great Adventure. It's not a world away. Paramount's Kings Island. We will officially open Universal Studios Florida. Hello, I'm Michael Eisner. Now, here is your host. Hi, and welcome back to the Defunct Land Podcast. My name is Kevin Perger. Today, I'm joined by a very special guest, former Imagineer Mark Eads. Mark, how are you doing today? I'm doing peachy keen. That's fantastic. My first question for you today is the most obvious, which is what were you doing before you entered the theme park industry, and how did you eventually enter the theme park industry? Well, like a lot of people in Orange County, California, I entered it by getting a job at Disneyland. Uh, while I was going to college at Cal State Fullerton, or as some of us like to call it Cal State Disneyland. And uh, <laughs> yeah, I started in foods, uh, working at Riverbell Terrace, starting as a busboy, uh, eventually became an order cook, uh, flipping pancakes and cooking eggs and all that kind of lovely stuff. After five years there, I met my wife there and we got married and then uh, we, we actually both transferred out of the Riverbell Terrace. Uh, she went into merchandising and I went into Tomorrowland uh, operations, or they call it attractions now. And uh, I ended up working on Autopia, the Subride. I did a lot of, I was the first male trained on America Sings. And I got closing shifts because even though I was full time, I got the low end of the pull on the shifts. And uh, you haven't lived until you've had to take the one couple that wants to go on America Sings right at closing and do whatever they wanted to do in the back row because I wouldn't look. And um, worked on Space Mountain my last summer. And then I ended up, uh, I got a degree in communications with an emphasis on film at Cal State Fullerton. And as part of that, I interned up at the studio during the summer of 78 when I was working Utopia at night. Uh, and I'd had two days off during the week. So the two days off, I'd go to the studio. And then uh, the other three days, I would go up and have to leave earlier because of my shift starting at five. I was on a great film by Disney called The Apple Dumpling Gang Rides Again. Ooh, that was a thriller. Um, and then uh, after uh, that summer, I transferred up to the studio into the mailroom, the classic beginning in the film business. So I was able to maintain my seniority within the company. I was getting by then three weeks vacation a year. Yeah, I went in the mailroom. And then uh, after uh, in the fall of 1980, I became the uh, late summer 1980. I was the vacation substitute for the only production assistant they had in animation. And he always took a month off. And then the animation department kept me. They liked me a lot. And uh, that was the old school animation department. And um that's back when uh, all the people who are the names in the animation business had the first class of Cal Arts out of animation had come in. So, you know, we had people like Tim Burton, John Lasseter, Brad Bird, uh, you know, you name it, they were working there. And then after a few months of that, my boss from the mailroom came to me because she knew it was slow and I was kind of bored and found something that was a little more active which was initially I was just a production coordinator for a, a post-production coordinator for all the films for Epcot and Tokyo Disneyland. And eventually I was promoted and became the post-production supervisor for all those films, though I was at the studio and paid by the studio. 
but because of all the stuff that I did, uh, Randy Bright took a liking to me and, uh, Basically, to become the supervisor, they made a deal where he said, well, look, you do this. It'll upset some of the apple carts at the studio. Uh, we'll give you a job at uh, WED Enterprises. And uh, it was a handshake deal, nothing in writing. And uh, I went down to Epcot with the only print we had of Magic Journeys. So that we had to get there by to open five days ahead of time for a preview by all the big wigs from all the corporations. And we did that, and then I flew my wife and my only son I had at the time, who wasn't even one year old, down, and they were there for the opening. And then uh, I met with Randy and Marty uh, the day I was ready to leave. They had me meet them uh, in Communicore, uh, right outside where the Astuter Computer Review Show was. And they said right then and there, this is four days after Epcot officially opened, we're going to have to redo that show, Mark. And uh, talked about some of the other films and issues and what was coming on Tokyo and the Horizons Pavilion, which was a year away. And I said, I guess I'm on a WED employee now, right? And Randy Bright said, yep, it's all ready. See so-and-so in professional staffing when you get back and they'll work out a transfer. This has been almost a year, gosh, a year and 11 months. And I'd never said a thing and nothing in writing. And I was made an Imagineer. And I stayed there for 11 years. So 21 years with Disney overall. And I became a writer. Wow. I was a writer producer type at Imagineering. And then I left Disney in uh, 93. I actually left in late March and got paid for the whole year. And then the first projects that I did out of di outside of Disney was I did some consulting on the original EFX show at the MGM Grand. And then I was brought on to what was known as the proof of concept or the concept blue sky proof of concept phase for uh, T23D. I was actually hired by uh, Jim Cameron's uh, effects company, digital domain. And I basically had to design and build a mock-up of the entire thing because they didn't really have really good building plans. They didn't know what the lenses would be, et cetera. And we had to figure out how to do all the, what the sight lines were going to be and where the, you know, the in-theater gags like the motorcycle and where the audience would be and how high and, all, you know, all those things. And uh, laid all that out and then eventually did a, got the mock-up and they shot some tests. Uh, and oh, by the way, after I got all six 70 millimeter projectors up on the uh, scaffolding was when the 94 earthquake hit. None of them fell. And uh, the projectors stayed pretty much in alignment. And then we Ran the test, had a big couple of uh, shindig shows for all the parties, and uh, then Universal said, this looks great. We're going to think about it for a while, and uh, nobody gets paid while we're thinking about it. So, you know, the vagaries of the freelance world, and then a uh, guy I knew from my Disney days by the name of Ryan Harmon uh, called me and said, hey, you know a lot of 3D? And I said, well, yeah, I've worked on quite a few 3D projects come on in here, let's get you to meet our vice president because they've got a 3D film they want to do and they don't know what they're doing. And I came in and met a gentleman by the name of Jim House and we interviewed and then I initially did some consulting and then I wrote a treatment. They liked it so much, they said, great, write the script and we want you to produce the film. And that eventually became Marvin the Martian in the third dimension. And that was kind of my theme park stuff uh, until through 97. And then... Uh, I took some time off and then uh, was going to go back into the business, had signed a deal memo for a project in Korea with Landmark, but two weeks after signing the deal memo, the uh, Asian financial bubble popped and there was no money. And my sister was working at a 
the Orange County News Channel, a local 24-hour news channel. And I'd been working a little bit there just because I found it interesting. So I said, can I go full-time? Yeah. And then she had quit and I went full-time and I went into journalism for 20 years. (laughs) Wow. OCN, the Orange County News Channel shut down on September 8th, 2001. And of course, 9-11 happened three days later. So I barely worked in 2002, but I stuck with it and started freelance writing for a bunch of, for the Orange County Register and a bunch of magazines. And and then uh, went on staff there and I took a buyout in 2017 and uh, now I'm just freelance once in a while. So it's been two careers. (laughs) Yeah, that's, that's amazing. I actually found you through your journalism um, career because I was reading some of your articles. Ironically, uh, I'd been at the register for a few years. I was in South County covering places like Coto de Casa and the Real Housewives and things like that. And uh, one of the deputy editors said, hey, we need to get more forward thinking of course, they were only five years too late, but uh, so they brought me up to the North Bureau and let's have Mark cover Disney. There were some that objected because of my past, but his attitude of mine was as long as everybody knows about it, who cares? And uh, I did a lot of behind the scenes stuff that they didn't allow anyone to do before and haven't since. So uh, I enjoyed it. I got to do a lot of cool stories with Disney. I did some great ones at Knott's too. And uh I got the last interview with Bud Hurlbut. I don't know if you know who he is, but he's the one that did the Calico Mine Train ride and the log ride at Knott's. So uh, oh, wow. anyway, that's my history in eight minutes. Yeah, well, thank you so much. That's uh, that's going to help perfectly for the rest of the interview because now I have all these questions to ask you about everything you just uh, mentioned in passing. Um, well, I'm going to stick to the Imagineering section. Um for for now and then i do want to move on to terminator uh and then again to uh marvin the martian um but you mentioned you were brought on in the early days of epcot so this was prior to epcot's opening yeah it was a uh, very late 1980 and um basically you know i was just thrust into a situation they had a a, a room they'd essentially built out of wall fake walls on sound stage two the mary poppins stage now it's called because that stage housed a bunch of film projectors set up to emulate the various film setups they had for Epcot. And so initially I was just answering phones and dealing with paperwork because back then when you shoot with film, there's a lot of paperwork involved and the computers, they were kind of non-existent. And uh, an Epcot film was a lot of film. I mean, one role of a circle vision film is really nine rolls because of the nine cameras, for example. So you might, it's a 400 foot load per magazine, but that means you're going to get 3,600 feet of film when the film comes in and it all has to be logged properly and documented. And I had to coordinate assistant editors syncing it up. And then they started having me coordinate dailies. And then I was also given the task of, uh, managing the schedule for the projection, but also everything through post-production, including the audio mixing, where we had to also build an audio mixing facility. And I spent a lot of long hours, (laughs) you know, either there or I was over transferring film to video for the digital audio system. And this was the first time digital audio was used to mix films ever. So with video assist. So, um, quite staggering stuff to do. And uh, I'm a neophyte trying to figure out what the hell is all this stuff. And uh, 
we had so many different film formats, circle visions, 3D, IMAX, big 70 millimeter. I mean, it was, it was a real trial by fire and uh, I just persevered. <laughs> so to the layman and even to some people that might remember early Epcot films, what are you looking at? I mean, I know you're doing a lot of the paperwork, but what is that? What does that look like, and what is that for? Well, um, for example, one of the films is still there, kind of the uh, France film, which is five thirty-five millimeter projectors running in sync. It's what we call a two hundred degree circle vision, uh, and then we had two full circle vision films at Epcot, one in China and one in Canada, for example. And you know, film would come in, we'd get a telegram that they had shipped film to the lab so we would watch for it and then the stuff would come over from the lab to the cutting department and then we'd get our film out there and then we'd I'd assign it out to somebody to sync it up and then I'd schedule dailies because everybody wanted to see the raw film before any cutting was done and for me part of the adventure was I mean first time American film studios have been allowed to shoot in China and we're seeing incredible stuff you know, and uh, the first film that got done was the France film, which was directed by Rick Harper. And so that became the first one to go through not just editing, but um, the audio cutting. You know, they had to cut sound effects. They had to record music to it and narration. And then we had to mix that. So it was really trying to how do we make this work? And it was just keeping track of everything. I had a chart. Somebody bought me one of these charts that I could put stuff up on and made it a little easier for me. And then, of course, once the film was approved, not only did you do the audio mix, but you also had to arrange for uh, it to be the negative to be cut and all the lab processes of making a final answer print, which is where you kind of tweak the color and then print actual prints that would go to the field. And, you know, it's just a lot of paperwork and process work and, you, you can once you understand it, it becomes semi-automatic, and you have reference numbers for all the different orders and stuff. And when it comes in, you go, "Yep, that's here. Okay, great. Let's view it. Does it look good? Great. If it doesn't, comments go back to the lab, and they make the changes. And then we look at it. And once everybody goes, "Yeah, that's the final version of the color. Great. Order release prints." And then I'd have to ship it to Florida. And uh, shipping a circle vision film to Florida is not one box. (laughs) How many boxes? Well, usually we'd get it in two because you could break it into five cans and then four cans. But, you know, you wanted those to stay together because of color matching. So, you know, that just, you worked out a process, a lot of time on the phone to Florida every day, uh, just saying, okay, I've shipped this, this, and this look for it tomorrow. Um, just it was easier to call someone and have them take a message than try to do a telegram or anything like that. So we had it worked out. They had it worked out where they had a staff on down there just to take messages for people uh, during the whole construction and installation. And that's the way it worked. Um, anyway, that was it was a lot of hours. I, I don't think I worked less yeah. than 14 hours a day, Monday through Friday, easily. And I did work a few weekend days just to catch up on paperwork. Oh my gosh. That's, that's a, that's a lot. <laughs> and, and, and that's just the tip of the iceberg. I mean, we had two full circle visions, the 200 degree one, the energy pavilion had four different multi 
screen films in it that all had to be segregated, and those were 70 millimeter. And then uh, we had, you know, like I said, the 3D film. Many of the rides actually had what are called ride loops. An example of that would be like Madame Leota in the Haunted Mansion, because that was film originally. And um, so Mexico had 15, the, the World of Motion had 16, uh, the Imagination Pavilion had 18. So, so you see, it's, it's just a lot of stuff to keep track of. And then there was stuff that had to end up on video projection. Um, so again, okay, this is a film. We shot it film, but then it would get transferred to video after it was done because they were using a video monitor or something on it. So all told, it was over 120 film projectors at Epcot, plus about another 40 video screens of some kind. <laughs> yeah. Well, I didn't even think about it until you mentioned all the, the, uh, the projections and the attractions yeah, um, and the video and the attractions, like the journey to imagination and all those. And those were challenging in a different way because t- the way the systems work, you, you know, your audio for a film isn't on the film. It's on a big master tape of multi-tracks, right? So to keep them in sync, they use what's known as synthy time code. And then the time code keeps the projector in sync. And when it's a ride, it just runs continuous, right? So the film's going through a cabinet where it's just a continuous loop. And the other problem with those is you had to make those loops divide equally into whatever the ride audio loop was. So say you had an audio loop of 96 seconds. Well, your film either had to be exactly 96 seconds or some smaller segment of that, and then you would duplicate it. So it would be, uh, you know, take 96 and do a prime, you know, common denominators and go, okay, we have to make this piece, you know, whatever 96 can divide by three, then can divide by, let's see, three into it is 32, then four. So you might make eight, 12 second pieces, but then you would string them together to make one piece of film that's 96 seconds long, just to maintain sync. It's just, that's the weirdness of the way the systems were. <laughs> I'm glad you made it out of there. Yeah, I made it. Out. I, I won't say I didn't get sick a couple times from all the, the pressure and tension. I did. But, uh, you know, you get through it. Like, so were you even doing the, like, Dreamfinder School of Drama, that stuff that was in the image? image that, was, like that, stuff? Like, that was actually done through the video department at uh, WED. Uh, I didn't really have to deal with that one. But we all the all the little film loops of, of of figment in the ride. Yes, I had to deal with. Oh, so like when he's lifting the weights and all that stuff. Uh... And so here's the main one that I want to ask you about um, is you know Magic Journeys. You were really close to not getting Magic Journeys there uh, on time. Yeah. And so you somebody made a. A dream run dream finder run or something of that of that nature yeah it, it was with that uh mike jitlove uh was the, mm-hmm. the actor and there was an editor who got mad when we decided we didn't have to go forward he blamed me for us it wasn't my fault uh well maybe it was because i managed to push to get the film good enough done that we could open with magic journeys because you know i'm sitting there going it would be a sin not to open with the right film but yeah they'd done this film where he was running around crashing into films and stuff like that and it got through a, 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 a cut and it had been viewed and this is great. And the day he said it, they, they all, you know, Randy Bright and parties looked to me and said, are we going to be able to get magic journeys done? And I said, yes, we are. 
and uh, there will be a couple scenes that will need to be repaired, but it'll be acceptable. And uh, the editor actually cussed me out later that day because I killed his pet project. <laughs> they said they, they, they turned to you right after watching the first cut of the run dream finder. Yeah, run dream what finder. was considered going to be the final cut. Yes. Look at the big picture again. Do you want to run that or do you want a really good right. 3d film? So the idea was it was supposed to be a really yeah, good 3d right. film and that's what Kodak wanted and they were paying the bill. So. Right. And that's a, uh, that's so funny. I was, I was wondering if you had a, uh, had encountered that. And so, um, were I know Horizons was so was Journey into Imagination, so this might be the it was nineteen eighty three. Um, but did you see the big like Omnimax or the not the Omnimax, but the dome kind of uh, big projections for Horizons or even the end? Well, bits? yeah, um, I inherited Horizons because uh, you know I transferred to Wed, and they basically within a couple of weeks the entire film production department had been laid off, and the guy who was the department manager. Uh, he took a, about a month off and he said, Mark, you're in charge. And it was just me uh, within like a month and a half. And so the Omnimax film was well into production. Eddie Garrick was doing that, which is the one you see partway through the ride. Um, and it was pretty much, e- it was easier because even though it was IMAX format, you made a 35 millimeter print and, you know, you just sat real close to it just for editing purposes and timing purposes. And it worked out fine. I inherited the, uh, a lot of the production on the rest of the stuff in Horizons. Some of the stuff had not been shot yet, uh, some of the little videos and stuff. They had shot, they had already shot way back in 1980, the two uh, scenes, one that's actually Tom Fitzgerald and then, the ro- and then he's a robot and then there's another lady who's a robot and then you see her on screen like they're talking to each other. So that was done. Oh, yeah right. yeah and then um the time the, the 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 skype boyfriend right yeah you know um there was a one thing that i hadn't even thought about but they had a scene where there's a girl in a bathtub and she's watching an old black and white tv monitor supposedly and there's a male singer on there singing it's a great big beautiful tomorrow so i had to that was my first directing effort if you will such as it was and he had to lip oh really yeah he had to lip sync that and uh Horizons had a lot of what you would call risque jokes if you really thought about it. You know, he's singing, there's a great big beautiful tomorrow and she's in a soapy bathtub <laughs> enjoying it. Um, oh, I never thought, I never thought about that. Yeah, I know. Um, and then uh, <laughs> the uh, choose your own tomorrow they'd been shooting and they were kind of, there was some issues and Horizons had a lot of budget issues. And of course, Epcot cost way too much. And I had to basically figure out, well, how can we get this stuff done without going over budget too much more? And I had to ask for $83,000 more. And Marty yelled at me when I told him, this is what I need. And then very quickly in the same meeting, I said, well, if you don't want to do that, then here's how we're going to cut things. <laughs> and, and then he calls an hour later, I'll find your money, Mark. <laughs> because, <laughs> you know, this is how you do it. And, uh, you know, so... Um, but I had to follow, I had to finish up. They were those choose your tomorrow things. They were shooting film and they were going to put it all together on film. And I said, look, I can save money on a few of these. If instead of film, we take them into video because they're just projecting standard video and finished post-production and video. And it saved us about 10 grand. And, uh, you know, that's how we finished those. Um, 
you know, there were some other little things here and there. So I'm trying to put that together. And at the same time, remember, I came over and Tokyo Disneyland had to be finished because it was opening in April of 93. So we had a Circle Vision film there. Magic Journeys had to go there, you know. So and then we had a thing called um, what was the thing that was supposed to go in the Meet the World, which had a bunch of film things in it, too. So we had to finish those and get them shipped. And and they had to, and and I did not go over there, but um, I was very used to the people working in Florida that understood how the stuff worked. The stuff in the people in Japan, including a couple of Disney people hadn't done it before. So there were a couple of middle of the night phone calls, let's just say. And uh, Mark, why isn't this doing this? And I'd explain it to him, but we cut the black film out. You're not supposed to do that. Circle Vision, all nine projectors <laughs> run at the same time. So you don't cut the black film out. You leave them in there and you just program the dowsers. Well, we cut the black film out. How do we put it? How do we make it work? You put the black film back. We don't know how much it was on each projector. You've got to be kidding me. You know, it's 3 a.m. in the morning and I'm at home. We want to run this later today. And I said, well, now you're going to have to wait till the second print shows up, which, you know, I shipped separately on separate days, so it wouldn't go on the same plane, and you're going to have to wait. And apparently I was not a popular person in Japan for 48 hours. And then they realized they'd screwed up. <laughs> this is, I mean, I'm just trying to trying to translate this because I'm, I'm, I'm even a little bit confused. So in this instance, you have all the circle vision films and they were cutting out the black sections and it was messing with the sink. Yeah. At the beginning of that particular film, it had what we called a staggered opening because they wanted to show off how you can oh, see right, all right. around you. And so what you would do, because projectors can't start and stop when they're supposed to be all in sync together. So, you know you just run black film and we could program the dowsers on the projectors to stay closed during that time. But the people over in Japan didn't understand that. And so they cut all that black film out thinking they were saving something. And it's like, Oh, (laughs) you know, what was ironic? What? They did that to me in Euro. I was in Euro and working on getting the, 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 the Le Visionarium up and running and the crew there sent me a test print. I said, well, we'd cut all the black film out figuring you didn't need it. And I go, you didn't. And they said, yeah, we did. And I said, oh, crap. <laughs> and I had to. I ended up having to edit black film back on to the longest length of the first print of the projector number one so the system would work. And I called them a few choice words. You use a lot of cuss words when you're in installation and somebody screws up. <laughs> Oh, it's such a, I mean, everything has to be synchronized or the illusion is completely gone. And that's actually one of my questions. No, no. The, uh, so when you're, when you're looking at these films, because you're viewing them um, and, and assisting with the edit and, and making sure that's ready to go in the attraction, were you ever watching any of these circle vision? You know, these, it's a, it's a giant rig. Was there anything that ever went wrong that messed up a shot? And so, oh, if yeah. so what? Or was it just it, like that, that? That they'd have shots that you know you could see it in the dailies because I was in post production initially, and you would see oh that shot didn't work, so you knew it. And they sent notes. You know they they would tell you which shots they thought would look the best, and you know we would always pay attention to them. And, and the the bad ones you you could see they'd have a start. Whoops, something went wrong. Somebody fell down or whatever, and you could see it. And I know uh, a couple years later when I was doing American Journeys, and I was the show producer for that project, the last shot that was done for that film was they put a circle vision camera on one of the catamaran canoes over at Waikiki because they wanted to make it look like it was surfing. 
and they did fine. And then the very last shot, the rig went under the ocean water and it's not deep, but it's like, oh shit, all that film now has salt water in the magazines. And we got a call telling us about it. And they had a, the cameraman was a good experienced man. They went and bought a bunch of styrofoam, um, you, you know, the things that keep coolers over there. And they got a bunch of tape right. and they went, he went into a dark room for an hour and a half. They also got a bunch of bottles of fresh water, filled each one of these things with a bunch of fresh water. And he went into a dark room. He was completely dark and he couldn't do it in a bag like they would sometimes do. He had to go into a room. They sealed it up. He waited half an hour to make sure there was no light leaks. And then he would open up each magazine. He would grab the film out of the one thing. He would then pour it, put it into one water thing, then put it into another one. And then they eventually sealed them up and they shipped them to us. And then they called us, told us, we told the lab to expect this film, et cetera. And then when they processed it and we looked at it, they, they, we held them in Hawaii in case they had to shoot again. And in that time they cleaned the camera and everything. And we got the dailies and we looked at it and call and they were on the phone. I'm on the phone with them in Hawaii and looking at the film on the screen. And then we look at the front, you know, we could only look at five of the nine at the time in California. And then we look at the back panels and I finally said, okay, you have two good shots. Come on home. (laughs) Oh my gosh. Yeah. So stuff happens and that's just, that's the nature of film production. So, and that circle vision rig was not lightweight. So, uh, yeah, I can imagine I'm, I'm, I'm trying to, this is, so this is American journeys. Yeah. That was, that opened at Disneyland in 84. Okay, so this is one of the multiple, because there was also America the Beautiful, which was the long-running one. Yeah, that was the one that was originally produced way back in the day, and it ran in the same attraction uh, for a long time, and the American Journeys replaced it. And there was somewhere in there was magic carpets around the world. Yeah, that was actually originally produced uh, actually for an exhibition somewhere. Then they redid some of it, and they put it into the Magic Kingdom at Walt Disney World. And then they showed it a little bit at Disneyland and everybody said they didn't want that. And then that actually a new version of that with some updated scenes was what opened Tokyo Disneyland. And then when we got American Journeys finished, the Japanese decided they wanted that. And so that's what we did. You know, we just had to translate it into Japanese. So you, you've worked, you work on a lot of these Epcot attractions. You're working on, um, horizons that's around 83 that you're f- finishing that up. What else are you doing at this time? Are you still doing literally everything or are well, you I attraction was, focused um, now? And we'd already started on developing a new show to the same, right after I got back and we were starting, I was trying to finish up Tokyo and horizons has started. Uh, we had a couple of people starting to develop. I said, you know, they wanted a budget. And I said, what are we doing? And we decided we were going to kind of stick to the same basis. One person, you know, a, a character unknown at the time uh, to tell the story of how compute the history of computers and how they worked at Epcot. And I said, okay, fine. And they said, well, come up with a budget, Mark. We have no script. <laughs> you know, So we did. I came up with a figuring 10 days of shooting and then they came up with a storyline. And then we, the, the, that, that attraction used film projectors, but to save a little bit of money and actually make it easier in post-production because part of the element was on a video television monitors that were uh, projected into a Pepper's ghost effect. So we shot the whole thing video. And then for the film, we transferred the video back to film and it looked fine. You know, uh, we ran a quick test and it worked. And I said, fine, let's do it. It'll save us a bundle of money. We don't have to pay the film lab costs. 
And because uh, film lab costs can get expensive back then. And then, uh, but that got going. And then uh, that was going along fine. And then the other thing that happened was uh, we'd started talking about simulator type things. And Randy Bright calls me down to the office while I'm working on um, in 83. It's like, I want to say September 83 and asked me, well, what do you know about simulators? And I said, well, I know they're used for training pilots and the military uses them. Some stuff we probably don't know because it's top secret. Why? And he goes, do you think it could be used in an attraction at the parks? And I said, yeah, I think so. I'd have to learn a little bit more about them. Fine. Go explore them, research them, and come report back in a few weeks. Okay. And they weren't able to be used at all. And that's the end of the story. Well, yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I researched simulators. I There was a really cheap one up at Pier 39 in San Francisco. So I flew up there and rode it. Uh, it they Basically, they'd put a camera on a roller coaster. So you were supposedly riding a roller coaster while this thing jerked you around. Uh, I flew an F-16 without flying. Uh, I also flew a helicopter without flying. By the way, I'm not a very good helicopter pilot. Um, you wouldn't want me as one. I couldn't get it off. It took me several times to get it off the ground. And I tried landing twice and everybody would have died every time. Um, the F-16 was basically flying. They didn't let me simulate takeoffs or landings for some reason in that. And as luck would have it, uh, I went with Claude Coates and a couple other people to a GE facility in uh, Florida uh, over where the racetrack is. And uh, they had a, that's where they were also doing a thing that was going to be for, for a tank simulator. And, uh, you know, the upshot was I wrote a memo. They were memos back then, right? And they were talking about buying a simulator and all that. And my memo said, yes, I think we can use a simulator and attraction, particularly if I understand how big this is and how many people we might be able to get on board so we can deal with the throughput issues, et cetera. And then I said, there are two ways to use this creatively, as I saw it. One if it's in Tomorrowland and we do it more as a Tomorrowland type of attraction, we treat it as a training simulator. You're going to get to go on board a training simulation flight with your pilot, et cetera, and, you know, get on board and he's going to take you on several different scenarios. And of course we'll have a glitch get into the system and something goes wrong. But the upshot was we admit it's a simulator and that's what it becomes. Option B is we take you on a different type of journey through some kind of other universe. And I said, perhaps the Star Wars universe, but that would require a deal. Now realize this is early 84 when Disney was going through the whole management upheaval issues and green mail and all that. But I said, and, you know, wouldn't my, my memo concluded with this is, and I wish I'd kept a copy when I, when I left Disney, I should have made a copy of that. And uh, I should have gone and asked Marty for one. Wouldn't it be nice if we could take a ride on the Millennium Falcon and then when we landed, we disgorged into the cantina from Mos Eisley? Look what they've done lately. <laughs> Somebody owes you some money. Uh, well, yeah, if you got residuals, it would be great. Now, right, part residuals of we, on attractions. Yeah, nobody gets them. Um, ironically, um, I'd also... Because, every, you know, we were only 400 people by then. Wet had really downsized a lot. And everybody had multiple hats they wore. Obviously, I could write. I would produce. I would manage projects. I would show produce. 
I, yeah, I also became the casting director then too. So I was doing any voice casting, which was for the most part, hiring the same few people to come in and do the voice, redo the voices for all the safety spiels, which was mostly BJ Ward. Um, but I also said, hey, if anybody wants to send a storyline in, send in a one graph of your story ideas. And I attached that to the thing. And that's what went to Randy and Marty. And they loved it. And then they had to go through the upheaval. And then Michael came in and eventually said, yeah, let, we bought a simulator. We got the money for the, the, the beast before the management changeover. And then after he looked at it, he made the deal with George Lucas. And off we went. So welcome to Disney. <laughs> Uh, so, so you did, did you continue to work with the star tours? Film? Oh, that was two and a half years of my life. If you count the research part, what were some, uh, interesting memories or stories from, from that experience? Cause that was, a not only a major attraction, a huge hit, but it's from everything that I've heard about it. It was also, it was groundbreaking, but it was also a big kind of stress on, does this fit? How do we do it? It's a simulator, of course. So, you know, he's a yeah. certain legendary Imagineer by the name of Tony Baxter. He wanted to, as we were trying to figure it out, I was working with the studio machine shop at the time who did all the projection and Don Iwerks and his people. And we figured it had to be filmed because that could stand up to the shaking and all of that. And uh, then Tony came down and said, well, I think we should be using high def video. Now realize high def video had just come out back then, right? And so he and I actually got into, uh, let's just call it a debate, in the hallway of the Gold Coast outside his office. And I said, no, it needs to be filmed. High def won't, is not good enough quality, much less the fact that it'll far apart. And then he's going, well, it'll save a lot of money because those projectors are cheaper. Well, yeah, I hope so because you'll have to replace them after two rides. I get a call a half hour later from Randy Bright. says, Mark, um, come down to his office. He says, you're going to have to mock it up. So we actually did a mock-up, and then we, I sat down with the video guys. I said, I don't want this to be me as film and you versus video. I want what's best for the attraction. So we decided that the best thing to use for a comparison purposes of the two things would be the Return of the Jedi effects reel. So ILM gave us a brand-new print, and there was only one telecine that could transfer to high def, and it was going to be at CES in Las Vegas, so we sent uh, Dave Spencer Jr. up there with it, and he oversaw the transfer. And then I took the print back, and we made a mock-up out at our Tahunga facility. Uh, we had one screen optimized for video. You know, all the specifications we'd figured out for where the seating was, the view angles, a cutout for what Rex was supposed to look like, at least at that point. Even the lighting, we had a, we got what we thought would be the lighting levels, and we had both a Sony three gun and a GE Teleria light valve, and they spent a couple days setting them up and tweaking them. And then I had a guy set up a film projector uh, in a in an adjoining bay on a film projector type screen. It took them all of an hour and a half to set that up. And then we had everybody come out. The ILM folks came down. Lucas came down. Dennis Murum was down. Marty Sklar, Randy Bright, Tony, Dave Melanson, the project manager. And first we run the the uh, GE light valve projector and say, Hey, that's pretty bright. They said, you know, yeah, okay, whatever. You know, I'm not saying anything. And uh, to me, clearly it was not bright enough, but, and the contrast ratio sucked. I mean, it was very high contrast, uh, but the project, and then they, then we showed the, the, them after a half hour of them staring at this forever, we ran the Sony one for another 20 minutes 
And of course, the project managers go, look at what this cost, only $1,200 for a projector versus the film projectors would cost this much by the time you throw in the loop cabinets and all that. And I'm, I don't say anything. So they're all done. I said, okay, everybody remember what seats they're in. We will now move to the same seats in the film side. So we parted the, the Dubatine curtain, walked over there, you know, walked 15 feet, sat down. Okay, run it. Started the projector, it starts running. Walt, who is the projectioneer, opens the dowser. Ten seconds later, Randy Bright stands up in front and says, well, that was an easy decision. <laughs> <laughs> and, and George Lucas is here as well? And don't get me wrong. Had the video been to a quality level, much less if it could stand up to the wear and tear, I would have been the first for it. When they finally changed it, what, in 2010, I'm sitting there going, great, I'm glad it's happening. The quality's there. The equipment can stand up. And now we can get what Randy and I had always talked about, different different versions of the show. Because, you know, we never did get to the moon of Endor. And three, we wanted to do a new film every three years. But the darned attraction was so popular, the park said, why? And yeah, you couldn't disagree with them. So we never did another film. Until yeah, fair we, enough. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and the other challenging thing on that, because I was the casting director, was finding the voice of Rex. RX24 um, had a description and we tried a whole lot of different people. One of the couple, several different cartoon voice talents, Frank Welker among them even brought BJ in and uh, we tried Billy Barty. You know, we have to pay him for some of these because we didn't want to just do a couple lines. We wanted them to go through it. A couple internal people tried it. Couldn't find anything that worked. Must've gone through 20 some odd voices and I, you know, as I would do back then, I went to a lot of movies just to hear talents, et cetera, cartoons or whatever. And I happened to see, uh, I went to see Flight of the Navigator one night. And I'm watching this movie and I hear the voice of the spaceship and I'm going, I don't know who that is, but that's it. You know, <laughs> and <laughs> I watched the credits and this is before anybody knew who he really was other than people on the comedy circuit. And it turned out it was a guy by the name of Paul Rubens. And I came in the next day and I told Tom Fitzgerald, who was the overall show producer, you, I even had the show times for him. Go see this film. Why? I found our voice. Go see it. Well, but no, just go. And he went and saw it. And he came back in later and says, Mark, you're right. Book it. We'll get something. We'll get it to George. But you, you nailed it. And um, so I got a hold of, you know, I had a, a consultant who got a hold of Paul on the set of his, he was in production for the first season of, peewee's playhouse and he'd already made the movie but it hadn't come out yet and he agreed to do it and he came in and the rest is history sparks one of the deals that that they and he had insisted upon is he wanted a pass to the parks because he enjoyed going to disneyland so he got one i had to take that up to corporate that had to, that had to be approved by frank wells <laughs> <laughs> and was he uh, what it, and was that an easy yes or was he like what i i wasn't sure that we should be making deals like that but they said, yeah, okay, let's do it. So we did. You work, uh, you work on star tours and thank you for those stories. It's so, it's so fascinating. Um, but I would be, uh, upset if we didn't get to, uh, your later career after this. So did you do anything else at Disney after star tours? Oh yeah. Uh, I mean, we had the, we had the seas pavilion, which had stuff, uh, it had a film and it had a, a couple of videos. One was animated that I had to produce, which was called an animated Atlas of the world. Uh, Dale bear, an accomplished, Disney animator was uh, out on his own at the time. And he did that. Uh, you know, um, I, I did a lot of smaller projects, some with film, some without, 
uh, ended up eventually I did uh, Muppet Vision 3D. Uh, you know, they, we did Captain EO in spite of ourselves, as I call it, uh, in spite of Captain uh, Star Tours, in spite of EO, we actually had on one of our memos because the studio thought they knew what they were doing. They clearly didn't. When they said it could be done for 10 million and I said it would be 18, they said I was wrong and it cost 23. <laughs> you know, I just, I did a lot of different projects and then, uh, I was the, one of the first people on the Muppet Vision 3D project, uh, working with Jim Henson directly on how to do good 3D. Uh, we we wanted good 3D. We kind of felt bad about Captain EO because it was so it was cut like a music video, and the 3D didn't always work because of that. And we felt we wanted it to really be a great 3D, plus kind of the spirit of the Muppets. And I was I I had a we had I was one that showed Jim how we could blow things up if we wanted to. So he ended up putting that in the show and uh, we had, you know, he, he listened a lot and he liked the idea of having stuff come off the screen, including Sweetums and in theater effects. So we, you know, we, that became a real groundbreaking attraction. And I was very fortunate to be very intimately involved with that. Uh, and then from there I went up, ended up doing, um, I ended up inheriting the Euro Disney circle vision project because uh the people that were on it, it was running really late and they asked me to take over as show producer and project manager. And at the time they handed it to me in August of 91, it was going to deliver four months late and I managed to get it turned around and uh, delivered a week before opening of the park. So uh, that was a stressful period. And then after that, I did, uh, uh, we redid the sequence called The Golden Dream in American Adventure. And uh, that was actually my last completed project. I was supposed to go on to Honey, I Shrunk the Audience, but I was having a creative disagreement because uh, Michael and Frank decided they liked the idea, but they didn't want to spend the money on the in-theater effects. And I said, if I'm going to produce this film, we got to rewrite the script to make it work. And they said, no, we're going to produce it anyway, and then we'll convince them later to do it. And effectively, I was going to have to not quite tell the truth about the film working. And I just decided, you know what? I didn't like the way it was going. And... Uh, I knew Frank Wells had said he was going to not sign a contract and I could see, I kind of could foresee that things were going to get a little awkward around Disney because Michael without Frank was going to be challenging and uh, nobody would stand up to Michael the way they should have. And um, I just decided I'd had enough time and uh, eventually had a meeting and in March decided to technically part as friends. I was given 30 days to look for something else to do within Disney. So I could go in every day, even though I knew if I didn't agree to any, you know, if I didn't stay, I would be leaving. And they didn't care. They were very nice to me. And uh, I got paid for almost all of 93. And my last day was actually in April. So, and then I left and uh, went on to stuff on the great, big, beautiful world beyond Disney. Before we move on from Disney, I do have to ask, because I'm a... Uh a huge Jim Henson and Muppet fan. I just on Muppet vision. Cause you did work. So intimately that my, my two questions would be one, what was it like to work with, uh, with Jim? And then what was, um, it like after he passed and, uh, you know, the pup, the puppeteers and, and your crew had to kind of scramble to finish or, or still release the film. Yeah. In the Working with them was, was a, a lot of fun. I mean, any production has its headaches, but it was really fun. And the production shoot was a laugh, Half the time you had to try not to laugh so they could get a shot done because the puppeteers would come up with little gags on you and, you know, you're laughing and it's, it's hard. And, um, 
we were having a lot of problems with the cameras for the 3D cameras had gone through some work, but they hadn't, we suddenly had to shoot with them and they weren't ready yet really. And, but we had to shoot because of scheduling with Frank Oz and all that. I mean, that was basically the last film production that had all the original Muppeteers on it. And, uh, you know, cause Jim died. And then the guy who would work with him on uh, Beaker died, um, you know, within a year, those two were gone. And then, um, but it was a lot of fun. And then we, uh, we had gotten the film to a done point and I actually went on vacation because we knew, okay, it had some problems. We needed to probably do some reshoots and we were going to get together in about three or four weeks. And then I went to Washington on a vacation with my wife. And then apparently that's when Jim got sick. And uh, while I'm on vacation, I get a call a week and a half into the vacation and Jim had died. And it's like, okay, you got to come home, Mark. And I did. So then it was like, well, how do we pick up the pieces? Because Jim had not actually signed the overall deal memo yet. And I had asked because I was listed as the producer on the film for all the contracts. And I had read them and I said, this doesn't give us clear title to the film yet. And a guy by the name of Bob Osher assured me, oh, yes, it does. And I tried to get him to show me where. And I was right. We didn't have clear title to the film. Yes, we owned it. But technically, we couldn't show it. And we knew we wanted to make changes. So we got enough going that we had a three-day reshoot to get new scenes shot with the original Muppeteers. We got everything looped. Jim had already looped stuff, so we were okay. And then we got it edited, and Frank had directed the three days, and then we did a, a mix with Frank that was just a temp mix. And then two weeks after that temp mix, uh, everything blew up. So then uh, we, we decided to finish the film, and we did the final mix up at Skywalker as well. And uh, the editor was uh, chosen as the one to oversee the mix. I kind of didn't agree with that, but I, I was there too. And we got it done and got the film done. We got it installed, got everything working, and then couldn't open it. And that's the way it ran for a while until Michael got Brian to come down, and basically they ran it for Brian. And Michael said, wouldn't it be tragic if we could never run this? So they end up getting a temper, getting a contract in place that allowed us to run it in Florida. And uh, that's the way it was for a long time until uh, I guess a deal finally got worked out after I left that they finally got, you know, they bought Henson Associates and the Muppets and uh, all of that. But it was challenging, I'm sure, for all the legal stuff because there were a couple of the Jim Henson's kids that didn't want to sign off on it. Before before you go, I got to ask about Terminator 3D because this is a fan favorite as well. And some people were very upset uh, when it closed in, here in Florida. So, um, you know, with, with that attraction, what what was it like working? Because you you come to Universal after Disney. Is there a different mindset? Is there a different process? It was definitely different back then because that was the Jay Stein era still at Universal. And uh, because the way they worked, I was actually working for Digital Domain, which is Jim Cameron's companies because of the film. It was just the way all these contracts were. And we were in charge of the mock-up. And basically, I got a call from a lady I'd worked with at Disney who'd worked on the film production side for a while. And she said, can you come over and look at this? And I did. And she said, we need to hire you to just take charge of this mock-up and figuring this bloody attraction out. <laughs> and I said, okay. <laughs> and, um, you know, it's great. Here I am. I barely out of Disney and I hear I'm working right away and getting paid well for it. 
and we had to figure it out. And I, I kind of, I, they didn't really have any blueprints either. And I knew enough about film and projectors that I did a, I did a theater layout based upon 60 foot wide screens, 70 millimeter projectors, calculated the lens. I did a top view and a side view so we could see how high we had to make the projectors and offset, you know, all this stuff so nobody would see it and how you know, all the all the wonderful things you have to do to make these things work. And you realize I'd been through this with Muppet Vision. Okay. So I kind of knew what to do. Uh, just had my my sense was. And you know, then we got to a point where, well, well, we need to have a meeting with Jim to go through everything, what they want to shoot in the mock-up, how they're going to do some of the visual effects and all that. And and because Jim's time was like two hours, here was the agenda. And Mark, you're going to go fifth. Okay, that's fine. I had my papers in hand, et cetera. So we're in a conference room at Digital Domain over in Venice, California, and in watch Jim. And he sits down and Cecil hands him the agenda and he goes, I want to talk to the guy who's figured out how to make this theater work first. <laughs> so instead of warming up to him, I'm thrust to the front. <laughs> so I took him through it and he said, you did it. And all he said, this is great. I, and he has enough of understanding of technical stuff that he got it right away. Everything I'd done, he said, this is perfect. You need to show this to Universal. Okay. And then I just sat down and listened for the rest of that meeting. And then week later we're at Universal and they hadn't done any drawings. So we go to Universal and I had, you know, I had done mine on a Mac and I had to print it out on um, uh, a bunch of eight and a half by 11s with a line to show where the page breaks were so I could tape it back together. Right. And then I taped it all back together. You know, I had 12, eight and a half by 11s, three by four of these. And then I took it to a Kinko's and had to make essentially a big blueprint drawing of all this and then we took it to Universal, and it was an interesting meeting because nobody wanted to talk. Here we are at Universal in this big conference room with Digital Domain, the Landmark people, some Universal people, creative and technical, and they just sort of talked to each other without talking about the issues. And it says, and then somebody said, well, you know, we really need to kind of talk about this in more detail. Anybody want to start anything? And me, I opened my big mouth, and I said, well... I have a couple of blueprints I've done of the theater layout and man, they were like bees rushing to honey. I mean, they glommed all over it and you know, there were people shooting darts at it and I'm prepared for darts. And I answered all their questions. One guy was so, he was so behooved or I don't know what he was, but he, he really wanted to test the screens over and over again. I said, these are the screens I use for Muppet vision. The screens we use for captain EO, they're the right screens. What are we going to test them for? You know, they're in use. So I kind of shot him down, which sometimes you have to do that. Anyway, they signed off on it, and I proceeded to build the mock-up. Had to go order a bunch of 70-millimeter projectors and three screens and all of that <laughs> and find a place to do it. You've been a, you, you've been a, you've signed off on some very expensive work orders. Yeah, for that one, I bought two projectors, figuring they would use them, and eventually they did in the attraction. And then we rented four more, uh, bought three screens, and then they ended up destroying them uh, just because the the takedown on us. Once a 3D screen is up, when you take it down, if you're not really, really careful, they they can fall apart. So that's fine. That's their problem. You know, uh, we actually did it at the old Hughes Airport property north of LAX in one of the hangars that Howard Hughes used to use. 
because uh, we needed a you know a big place, and uh, I had the I had the key to the locks for a long time. <laughs> In fact, when we tore it all down, I was the one that had to be the last one out, lock it up, and turn the key over to the property manager. <laughs> so. Well, that, that's awesome. That's so cool. The, uh, that's uh, all, all of this is, is so amazing. Thank you so much for giving me so much of your time today. I do want to talk before we go, um, about Marvin, the Martian in the third dimension. This was a attraction that was at a few parks. Yes. It was originally the reason they started was they were going to build a new Warner brothers theme park, similar to the one they had in Australia in Germany. And they decided they wanted a 3d film and they were going to put that into Australia as well. Um, and apparently they'd been spending some time on stories and hadn't really gotten anything they liked. There was discussion about what to use. And they'd, they'd already decided they wanted to use Marvin. But uh, the, the, the park designer for Germany, Rolf Roth is his name, uh, he thought, well, we'll use Speedy Gonzalez because he's popular in Germany. I'm like, you can't use him. And I was, I'd been, you know, the T2 thing had shut down. I'm not making any money. So I was like, here's a potential job. I went over there, did consulting, and I'm looking at these they had 11 different like storyline scripts, but they were written by TV people. So they were all very dialogue heavy. And I said, they had me read them. I come back in and I talked to them and I said, and they said, you know, these are all talkies and this is a 3d film. And if you want to use Marvin, but he needs to have, you know, a foil, um, all the best Marvin films always had a foil of some kind. They said, great. And you have some ideas. Yeah. Can, can you give me a couple weeks to think about it? Sure. So I went off and I kind of played with it and I came back in. I said, well, you need to have one of two foils. First would be Bugs Bunny. And they did not want to tackle Bugs Bunny in 3D. I don't know why, but they were afraid of it. And I said, well, the next logical one would be, and I, I kind of had an inkling of an idea where we do something where we bring Daffy Duck as Duck Dodgers out of retirement. And they kind of liked that. So I went off and I think it was three days later, I came back with a, 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 a treatment storyline that uh, was Duck Dodgers versus Marvin the Martian. It was kind of a takeoff on uh, the Princess of Mars. There was supposed to be a Princess of Mars, and she wanted to star in some big-budget, multi-dimensional extravaganza, and she wanted a brilliant and handsome co-star, and she had seen on the giant telescope, you know, Duck Dodgers, and she wanted him to be his co-star and ordered Marvin to Earth to do it. And that was the first storyline, and they, they sent it on up the chain and came back that they loved it. And I was in a meeting with the number three in command at Warner Brothers, and he said, this is great. Mark, uh, why don't you write, write a script and uh, produce this film? And all of a sudden, I'm on board. I asked for another guy to help me write it who was an animation person because I know all the animation directions. And the, his name was Chris Otsuki, O-T-S-U-K-I. And uh, we co-wrote that script. And during the process, the princess character, they couldn't sign a character, and it, it dropped out. So it just became Marvin and Daffy and the dog, of course. And, um, and originally, they wanted a live action ending with some with one or two of the Warner Brothers stars. And then that fell by the wayside. And I had to, I probably did eight different endings on that film till finally they said, yes, do animation, do this. And I wrote it, and they said, that's great. And you know, and then we then we and we had to figure out how to do the 3D because it was very big that they wanted it to look 3D yet still look like it had the line around it, like the classic characters, and that involved some tests. And uh, but we got it to where, yep, that will work. And then we had to produce the 12-minute film, and uh, cost 12 million dollars. 
which I said it would cost. <laughs> I'd finished that. And actually, since I'd left Disney in 93, I'd had actually no time off. So I decided to take some a few months off. I had my fifth kid was on its way. And, uh, you know, is that right? No, it was my fourth kid was on the way. And, uh, you know, I just decided I wanted to take some time off uh, and just kind of get my head above water, if you will. And um, took a few months off. And then, like I said earlier, I signed a deal memo to do something. The Asian financial budget crashed and there were people in the business who had to move back in with their parents because there was no work. And I went into journalism and became a journalist. And my degree from of communications at Cal State Fullerton included journalism, radio, TV, and film. So it wasn't that hard to transition over and did uh, television news, which worked well for me when I started doing internet stuff at the register in 07, they decided to have me be the first multimedia reporter. And uh, so I would write stories, take photos and do videos online for the register. And I did that from, for a big chunk of my time there too. And I, I enjoyed it. I mean, the wonderful thing about journalism is you're writing a different story every day and it's a good writing discipline. Um, it's a different kind of writing. So I've done writing in film, television type stuff, videos for internet, television news. I've written for longer form journalism, very short form journalism. I've done slideshows. And on the film side, I've done every format under the sun from eight millimeter to IMAX. So it's it's been a fun, I guess, life. <laughs> and during that time, I've been married to the same woman and had five kids, and I'm still in the same house I moved into in 1982. Wow. As we're wrapping up, if anybody ever, uh, I forget where I saw it. Was, was it the OC register? Yeah. If you were to do a Google search for just type in my name and site ocregister.com, you'll see the articles. A lot of videos are on, a lot of the videos are on YouTube now. So you can type in YouTube and my name and you'll, you'll get a whole bunch of them. And a lot of them are behind the scenes videos at Disney that I was allowed to shoot. Um, they used to be on the story pages online, but as the register went through different managements, they kept screwing up the online stuff and, uh, I don't think any of the videos are attached to their stories anymore, sadly. Um, and I'm not there, so I don't care. <laughs> and Mark, uh, thank you so much for coming on and giving me so much of your time and your stories and your expertise. This has been amazing. And yeah, and I do have my own webpage, markeeds.com. I don't write that often on it these days because of uh, my, I've been dealing with my dad's health issues a lot. But uh I do write on it occasionally, and it also includes a one-month trip I did with my dad a year ago, which a lot of photos and was really a fun trip. People might enjoy that. And I wrote about Disney and Knots on there occasionally, too. So thank you very much. Um, and to everyone listening, thank you for listening. Uh, don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. And thank you for visiting Defunct Land. Defunct Land.